We are starting sermon number two in our series uh, on the attributes of God. We're looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith is kind of, question four is kind of framing the series. It's not necessarily dictating what we're preaching, but it's giving us the categories of thinking about God's character and God's attributes. Last week, we considered the first part of that statement that God is spirit. We're going to shift the order a little bit this week. I don't know if I just made the whole Westminster Assembly groan, but they're all in glory now, so they don't care. But the question reads, just to remind you, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We're going to eventually get to every one of those words, but we're coming this morning to the, the, the theme of justice, because not only does it fit well with um, our, our series, I mean, we can talk about justice anytime for, in, in this series, but it fits well with it being Reformation Day and the truth of justification, which is rooted in our need to have something to remedy our sin against God's justice. So on this Reformation Day, we are going to remind ourselves of the discovery that rekindled, or kindled actually, the spark of renewal and revival in the church some 500 years ago. It was this gospel that set Martin Luther free. However, it didn't begin that way especially for him personally, because it began actually with a hatred of God's justice. The Reformation began with the hatred of God's justice. Here's what Luther writes about that. Meanwhile, Luther says, I had already during that year returned to interpret the Psalter anew. Remember, he was teaching theology locally at a university. He was also a monk. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor, passion, for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up until then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, that is, by doing things that he was doing as a monk. He says, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. That's, dear ones, where the Reformation begins. Luther and his hatred of the justice of God. And from one perspective, there's good reason for Luther to hate the justice of God. Because in Scripture, the terms righteousness and justice cannot be distinguished from each other. They involve each other, even though they're not always necessarily the exact, referring to the exact same thing. 
But God's justice can be defined as His perfection in His divine nature by which He has to maintain His own ethical righteousness over against every violation of it. That is, God must punish sin and sinners. There is no law or standard above Him to which He must conform or to derive His standard of justice. It comes from Himself since He Himself is just. His own innate, intrinsic knowledge of truth and who He is as a God of truth is the basis of justice. And for us, this standard of justice is set forth in His law, in His Word. And it over and over says in His Word that He will reward that which is consistent with His righteousness and justice and punish that which isn't. So you can understand why from one level, Martin Luther raged with fierce anger against the righteousness and justice of God. Robert Raymond, summarizing the idea of God's justice, writes, God reacts to human conduct, both good and evil, with absolute propriety. That is fairness, justice. He condones nothing, and he overlooks no mitigating or extenuating factor. Since dishonoring the infinite God by sinning against him is worse than destroying countless worlds, even the impenitent or the repentant person's smallest sin has infinite disvalue for which no created good can compensate by way of satisfaction. What's he saying there? We can't get ourselves out of this mess. And Luther felt it, and Luther knew it. He had committed himself to this strict asceticism, living the life of a devout monk in the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s, striving to ease his troubled conscience against his own past sins, his present struggles, his future struggles, and he waged war by trying to make himself a better person. And as he read and studied and taught the letter of the Romans, the letter of Galatians, the book of Hebrews, he came to understand there's no way out of this. Not only am I guilty before the righteousness of God, but as Romans 1.17 says, in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's no hope in the good news either. The good news of the gospel has the righteousness of God in it. There is no hope for a sinner like me. No wonder Luther raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. But dear ones, that wasn't the end for Luther. And it's not the end for us. For continuing, he writes the following. Nevertheless, even though he hated the righteousness of God, he said, I beat importunately, that is fiercely, upon Paul at that place. He was studying Romans 1. Most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Good job, Luther. Way to look at the verses around that. He says, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it's written, he who is through faith is righteous shall live. Luther writes, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it's written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Ah, See, he was no longer having to pursue righteousness. He realized righteousness was a gift that was given by God, and that is good news. That is sweet gospel. And so Luther responds, Here I felt that I was altogether born again. Maybe he was. 
and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture shattered itself to me, and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. And so it has been for all of us down through the years, whether or not we ever read Romans 117 or not. The gate to paradise is recognizing that we cannot work out a righteousness of ours in our own strength and work that will sufficiently pass the, the judgment of God. And so as a result, God provides that righteousness to us as a gift through the work, through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's received by us, not achieved by us. It's received by faith that is simple trust, open hands, taking from God the gift that he has given us. So God's justice, when he understood it that way, became not just a, not an object of hatred, but a door to paradise. But how? How did it become that way? It came through the doctrine of justification, which is illustrated for us in this vision in Zechariah chapter 3, which is what we're going to consider this morning as we see God's justice in action and the gift that comes as a result of it. Now, just a word um, to children, especially. Uh, I sent an email out last night to the families in our congregation, and contained in that email is a, is, a, is a link to a YouTube video of a story called The Prince with Dirty Clothes. It was written by R.C. Sproul before he passed away, and John Hogue recently did that in our Heritage Christian School Chapel for elementary kids. So if you're in Heritage Christian School and you were at the elementary chapel, you already heard this. But I hope that if you were there at the Heritage Christian School Chapel, this is the passage it's based on. So you're going to see a lot like, hey, this sounds like a prince with dirty clothes. Good. It is a prince with dirty clothes. It's what the story was based on. So I hope that even having heard that in the chapel, uh, I don't know when it was done, this week, last week, a little while ago, a little while ago, that, that it will refresh your memory and be a help to you. Also, if you haven't heard it or, or read the story, uh, check out the, the link in the, in the email I sent, and you can watch it sometime this week. It'll be a good follow-up uh, to this morning's sermon. So let me just give you the, a quick context of before we jump into Zechariah 3. What's going on in this before we get to it so we can understand why this story shows up where it does? So Zechariah is preaching as a prophet to the, uh, to the Jewish community that has just come back from exile in Babylon after 70 years. So we're after the time of the exile back in the land of Jerusalem. Um, in Israel. So Zechariah preached to the Jewish community who had returned. And the Babylonian captivity, as you know from scripture, was one of the lowest points in Israel's very checkered history. But it seemed like a new day was dawning. And the first order of business was to rebuild the fallen temple, as the prophet Ezra teaches and the priest Ezra does. And then we will, then the wall around Jerusalem, which we considered when we looked at the book of Nehemiah some time ago. So God also raised up prophets in addition to leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah to help the people rebuild, but not just to rebuild physically, but to rebuild spiritually. And so the spiritual leaders like Ezra also had prophets alongside of them like Haggai and Zechariah to inspire the people to have a renewed dedication and resolve not just to rebuild the city, but to fix their hearts and to repent of their sin and to run to Christ or run to God at this point for mercy. Zechariah received a series of visions in the book of Zechariah in an uninterrupted night. And these visions informed Zechariah's um, directions and instructions 
to Israel. And the first of three visions revealed the hope of deliverance and prosperity for Israel. And yet the spiritually minded Israelites who would have been listening to Zechariah's visions would have wondered, since God is just, how can he make all these promises that we're going to be restored and have safety and security and freedom and blessed like this? See, the early parts of the book of Zechariah are all these great promises from God. I'm going to restore you. I brought you back out of captivity. You're my people. And yet the spiritually minded would have known God can't just do that. We're the same people now that got us into captivity to begin with. Now, what got God's people into captivity to begin with? Their sin and God's justice against their sin. God had threatened them that if they continued to live in sin and walk away from him and disobey him and fail to trust him, that he would exile them. He would send foreign armies in to conquer them and take them out of their land. And that's exactly what happened under Assyria and Babylon. And yet here we have this word in Zechariah 3 of how God's going to make that happen. It's not going to happen through the people becoming better. It's going to happen through God providing righteousness for them that they did not earn. It's a foretelling and a foreshadowing of the gospel that we see fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so we turn to Zechariah's fourth vision this morning, which narrows the focus to how will God deal with the personal sin of the people so that he really can bless them. Now, the scene in the vision centers around Joshua, the high priest. And since the high priest was sort of the the big paramount representative of the people of God, what's true of Joshua is true of every justified sinner. The ultimate point of this vision, as we will see, is that it is symbolizing a picture of how God justifies a sinner, how God justifies us. That is, makes us, counts us righteous in his sight. We're going to learn four truths about justification this morning. Here's the first one, the need for justification. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So the passage begins with this courtroom scene in which Joshua is the accused sitting in the dock, standing before the angel of the Lord, the judge, and is being accused, prosecuted by Satan. So imagine the angel of the Lord's on the bench representing God. Joshua, the high priest, is in the docket representing the at least pronounced guilty or at least seeking to be proven guilty. And then the, the, the prosecuting attorney, who is Satan himself, coming to God. The passage moves in this direction and we have Satan as the great prosecutor and adversary accusing God to Joshua and accusing Joshua to God. It's like Genesis 3 and Job, right? In Genesis 3, Satan is accusing God to Adam and Eve. And in Job, Satan is accusing Job to God. God, he will do it both ways. He'll take accusations in both directions. He'll go after the sinner. He'll go after the judge. What makes Satan's accusation stick in some ways is that it's so true. He's accusing him, Joshua, of serving as a high priest. That's a a holy position. 
That's one in which God has pronounced you as righteous in a certain level. And yet, how is Joshua dressed? He had dirty clothes on. And so Satan is right. Hey, God, what are you doing here? The specific accusation against Joshua is not recorded, but we can infer from it that it's how Joshua is dressed in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And this picture of Joshua being dressed in dirty clothes portrays how every one of us stands on our own before God. We have no inherent right to stand before God and be accepted on our own merit. We are filthy. Martin Luther seems to have had some pretty hypersensitive perceptions of Satan's actual power. He once dismissed further medical attention for a physical illness, insisting it was supernaturally induced by the evil one. He credited the deceiver for horrible weather storms, and when a friend's horse suddenly fell and died while hunting, Luther identified the prey as a specter of Satan. He once threw an inkwell while in his study at the devil who had been incessantly accusing him. Though perhaps at times he was a bit too sensational in his sense of Satan's influence, Martin Luther reminds us of something that's vitally important for us to understand. We have a real adversary, friends, who has real claims against us by nature. The things he says outside of Christ about us are absolutely true, sometimes exaggerated, but nevertheless at root are true. We are sinners. And he does prowl around still like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And till the end of time, according to Revelations 12, 12, 10, he will be the accuser of the brothers. Luther often testified to his own bitter attacks by Satan. He wrote, the devil hounds me about a single sin until the world becomes too small for me. Similarly, when a doctor came to him troubled and depressed, lamenting, the devil is a master at taking hold of us where it hurts most. Luther said, yes, he is quite agile. He can make the oddest syllogisms. You have sinned. God is angry. Despair. So there we stand like the doctor that came to Luther and like ourselves in and of ourselves, silently dressed in detestable, filthy garments with no self-defense before the judge. The language is graphic in describing the garments they are heinously detestable. They are disgusting. They are fouled by excrement and vomit. The sight is not pretty, but it vividly pictures how we appear before God in the filthy rags of our own righteousness, precisely de depicting our moral pollution as sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 captures it well. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. See, even our righteous deeds can't fix our unrighteous deeds because they come out polluted because they're part of a polluted person. We all fade like a leaf, Isaiah says, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And because of this unrighteousness, all of us are guilty before the justice of God. Perhaps no one described this more vividly than Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to these words again. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider over, or some loathsome insect over the fire, looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night 
that you were allowed to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given you why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop into hell. O sinner, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and nothing to lay hold of yourself. He goes on, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and the tend downwards with great weight and pressures toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution, your healthy body and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. That's our condition naturally before God. And it's worse than that. It's worse than we can ever know. And this is why we need the act of justification. We have a need because we're dirty, we're filthy, we're unfit for God's presence. Secondly, we come to the act of justification. And this act of justification is by pure grace. Notice what happens here. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, the angel, the judge, on the, on, on the bench, says, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Zechariah inserts this part of his vision. Hey, do this. And God does it. So Joshua is silent. He has no self-defense. He has no one coming to his aid. He's guilty as charged. But the vision highlights something of the beauty of the gospel because God does for us what no one else can do for us, not even ourselves. The angel of the Lord does something for Joshua, the high priest here. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. And he takes them off. And then he puts a clean turban on his head and clothes him with clean garments. See, God rebukes Satan and he rescues Joshua, the high priest, as a brand that's plucked from the burning. Joshua is fit for destruction, but he's delivered by grace. Joshua was accepted before the Lord and allowed to stand in the presence of the Lord. The accuser is swept away. He has no power to condemn the one that God accepts. Notice how this happens. First of all, the Lord forgives Joshua's sin. Remove the filthy garments from him. I have taken your iniquity away from you. See, the guilt and the liability to punishment that Joshua had because of his filth was taken away. It's the Lord alone who can take away our filthy garments. And that, that would naturally only result in nakedness before God and susceptibility to messing it up again unless something else is done. And that's why we see a second thing. Not only does the Lord forgive Joshua's sin, but he provides a righteousness for Joshua. The filthy garments are removed. They're replaced with costly and glorious clothes. The clean turban refers to a headdress of the high priest that's inscribed, as we learn in Exodus 28, with the engraving, holy to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have. We are given a crown of righteousness in the sense that when we believe in Christ, we are not just viewed as those who have received forgiveness and therefore were in debt and are brought up to zero, brought up to neutral, 
and have to earn our way back into God's favor, but we are not only brought up to zero, we are given a full account of righteousness, a clean turban on our head that renders us holy to the Lord. Our filth is replaced by radiating holiness in the presence of God. And we need to remember this because justification is is an act, not a process. It's It's a declaration. It's not something we work toward. It's not something we try to maintain. That's why I said the act of justification. This is, this is a decisive decision on the part of the judge to render Joshua not guilty in his presence. And the act of justification for us in Christ is the same legal declaration that God gives. It's a judicial pronouncement by the judge. Not guilty. Righteous. It's not declaring what is already a reality from eternity past or what will be true in the future. It's God's actual decision that takes place the moment we believe in Christ. This declaration is therefore not a process. It's not a creative work of God in believers that makes us morally better. It's a divine judge's verdict in advance of the day of judgment that when you get there, don't fear. Your judgment day has already happened. It's not a provisional announcement, but a once-for-all divine decree in the here and now that's not overturned, withdrawn, or made permanent on the last day. It's just confirmed on the last day. Thirdly, the ground of justification. Where does it come from? We've seen the need for it. We're filthy. We've seen the act of it, God replacing the clothes with other clothes. Well, where does it come from? Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign pointing to something else. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And if you know anything about the rest of the New Test or the Old Testament, whenever God talks about the branch, capital B, it's referring to Messiah. Isaiah 4, verse 2, uses this as a messianic title. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, 33, verse 15, uses this as a messianic title. In fact, it it's called, he's called the righteous branch. The righteous branch. And Zechariah is now talking about this branch. And we know, brothers and sisters, that this, this branch is talking about Christ. Christ is the ground of our justification. Christ is the foundation by which our justification is given. This title of branch depicts the Messiah as a new shoot of life coming out of a dead stump. I love that image. Out of the house of David, God is going to bring a, a, a new root. Out, out, of the, out of the root of the house of David, God's going to bring a new branch. It's going to sprout and it's going to give life. And it's a dead trunk that's pictured. And nevertheless, the branch would achieve all the righteousness that is needed for God to acquit his guilty people. And that branch is called the servant in the Old Testament. Speaking of his humble obedience, even to the point of death. Look at verse 9 again. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its description, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Isn't that amazing? That's a reference to sin being removed in one day, pointing to the cross. Can't Can't you just read that verse? I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
And you, and you read the New Testament and you say, oh, Zachariah, it's not going to take that long. It's not going to take a whole day. It's going to take three hours. Because of the righteousness of this branch on the cross, he is going to exhaust the wrath of God for multitudes upon multitudes of people who ever would believe in him from all of history. That's how righteous this branch is. And when he said, dear ones, it's finished, the iniquity's gone in a single day. It's finished. Christ's perfect life and his death is the only ground for salvation for us. Jesus is God's answer to our guilty predicament. The Son of God takes a human nature to rescue humans by becoming the new representative of his people. Joshua was a kind of representative. He was a high priest. He represented the people before God. He mediated God's, God to people and people to God. He stood in God's place to mediate God back and forth. We don't need Joshua the high priest. We have Jesus the high priest. And he mediates for us in the presence of God against all the accusations of the devil, against all our remaining sin. And as Adam was our original representative, and we were born united to Him in sin and death, so Christ, the last Adam, is our representative now by faith, and we belong to Him. But unlike Adam, He's also our substitute. He lived in our place and died in our place, and therefore, as 1 John 2, 2 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This gave Luther immense courage in his fight with the accusations of the devil. One of my favorite quotes from him is as follows. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak to him. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I will be also. In fact, it's this victory, dear ones, that we proclaim and that the church has historically proclaimed tomorrow on October 31st. What is tomorrow in the kind of the history of the Christian calendar, so to speak? It's All Hallows' Eve. In the Christian tradition, November 1st is All Saints' Day. October 31st is All Hallows' Eve. All, Hallows Eve. All, All Saints' Day was a day that was set aside to honor and celebrate the triumph of saints who have gone before us, especially our martyred brothers and sisters. And a more historic word, an older word for saint is hollow. And so the day was originally known as All Hallows Day. And an important part of the celebration involved the night before, our All Hallows Eve. Thus, the contradiction Halloween came to be. Now, I know America's taken it. We've made it a commercialized empire of gore and violence and things like that. But the darkness associated with the day has Christian origins. Because... The tradition of All Hallows' Eve is why Martin Luther chose October 31st as the day to post his 95 Theses before All Saints' Day. Robert Cunningham came here and spoke at a conference for us, and he's a good friend of mine from college days. I was listening to a podcast of his this week, and he reminded me again of what the early Christians did on All Hallows' Eve, and I want to remind you of that. The tradition of Halloween is a celebration of our confidence over the demonic realm. Jesus takes our sin and is condemned as such. We receive his righteousness and are accepted as such. Therefore, God in the gospel of Christ has stripped Satan of all ammunition, leaving him nothing to accuse us of. 
Colossians 2 says it perfectly. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that's exactly what we do on All Hallows' Eve. We mock Satan. So confident are we in the triumph of Jesus that we literally have a holiday set aside to ridicule Satan. We will take what should be scary, devil, demons, and death, and turn them into an occasion for a neighborhood party. In fact, we're so confident in Christ that we will actually dress our children up as a mockery of evil because for the Christian, Satan is as scary as a kid in a mask. I wrote a similar take last All Hallows' Eve on October 31st, 2022. I put it on Facebook. I wrote in a somewhat poetic form. For when the grave had done all that it could, it did not withstand the Redeemer who stood and put a firm foot through his grave-robbing death. Or sorry, and put a firm foot through his grave-robbing breath on the sin that once guaranteed our death. And so if in Christ you take your part, making mockery of death from life-given heart, give out your candy to neighbors in dress, a reminder that grace has entered our mess. Be a light to the world in a world full of black because he left the grave and never went back. And it was this sort of mockery that led Luther to treat the devil's accusations not only with the truth of God's word, but you're going to hear this right, with his own flatulence. You heard that right. Any of of you who know something about Luther know he could be a tad coarse at times. Read some of his writings. I'm going to clean him up a little bit for public consumption. This is the first and last time, I think, you will ever hear the mention of flatulence in a sermon but it's only because it's Reformation Day and Martin Luther did it first. He writes, Almost every night when I wake up, the devil is there and wants to dispute with me. I have come to this conclusion. When the argument that the Christian is without the law and above the law doesn't help, I instantly chase him away with a toot. I am of a different mind ten times in the course of a day, but I resist the devil and often it is with a toot that I chase him away. When he tempts me with silly sins, I say, devil, yesterday I broke wind too. Have you written that down on your list? When I say to him, you have been put to shame, he believes it. Thus I remind myself of the forgiveness of sin and of Christ, and I remind Satan of the abomination of the Pope. I bet you didn't expect that to be in the sermon this morning, did you? But there it is, and ever shall remain. And since there's no smooth transition, let's just go to the final point. Number four, the result of justification. The result of justification. Joshua tells us, or Joshua models for us, and Zechariah tells us what the result of justification is in verses six and seven. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Look at verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What's the result of justification? Once we are aware of our need, we, we recognize we have filthy garments on, we are given those clean garments and those old dirty garments are taken off and they're replaced with a robe of Christ's righteousness, all as a result of grace. And then we know that the ground of that hope is our righteous branch, the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what happens after that? Well, we're told here, the angel of the Lord says to Joshua solemnly, walk in my ways, 
keep my charge. Obey me. So the result of justification is obedience. It's not the ground of justification. It's not the way we get, in, the way we get justified. It's the fruit of justification. It shows that we have been justified. See, Zechariah makes it clear that a change in legal standing, that is from guilty to innocent, demands a change in our moral behavior. A change in standing demands a change in walking. Justification in the theological language always issues in sanctification. Those who are justified walk in God's ways, that is, we strive to conform ourselves to God's law, we keep his charge, that is, we obey his commands, and we strive to maintain justice. Those justified are to be like Christ. We strive to imitate him and represent him. Zechariah describes Joshua and his, and his companions in verse 8 as a sign. Literally, men who are to be wandered at. What does that mean? What are they all about? Literally, they were men of a sign. They were men who were types of something else. They were signifying the branch that they were attached to. So it is with us. As justified sinners, we live out our lives representing Christ and striving to show that we are attached to the branch. Didn't Jesus kind of talk about that in John 15? I am the true vine, or my father's the true vine. I'm the vine dresser. Every branch in me bears fruit. This is the same idea. It's got deep Old Testament roots. The vision begins now with this despairing picture and ends with this glorious picture. In verse 1 through 3, we get this picture of a dirty, filthy, defiled high priest. And in the end, in verse 10, we get every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That, friends, is what Reformation Day is all about. If you came here this morning, get in on this. You are invited under this fig tree. Now, in order to do it, you've got to recognize at least three things. Number one, you are a rotten, hell-deserving sinner by nature. That is hard for human pride to acknowledge. We want, but I want to encourage you guys, this is a no group to save face around. You get to know us, you're going to, see some, you're going to hear some pretty rotten testimonies. People who, we might look cleaned up now, ask us our stories. Ask us where we've been. Ask us what God has rescued us from. We got stories. We got sins. We got skeletons in the closet, but we got a robe of righteousness we're wearing. And that frees us to be honest about our sins. And that's the second thing you need, not only to admit that Christ, that, 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 that out apart from Christ, I really am this bad, but, but, but also in Christ, I can become as God desires. I can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, perfect in His sight without fault or blemish, seen in God's sight as holy and without wrinkle. That's the hope that gives us to confess our sins because the judge of all the earth has said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what can Satan or any other human being make to stick to our account if God has said we are forgiven? So it involves recognizing that you are a priest with dirty clothes. It involves recognizing that God alone can give you the clothes you need. And it involves turning to God by faith and, and, and asking him for those clothes. Asking him to clothe you in, in the righteousness he has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will do it and you will be saved. Rather than being abandoned to the fire, we are like the high priest as a stone upon which seven eyes, as verse 9 says, which likely represents all the Lord's people 
always under the Lord's gaze. The Lord will never turn his face away from us. He turned his face away from Jesus, so he would never turn his face away from us. His omnipresence, represented by seven eyes, his perfect vision will always be upon us as his people. We enjoy God's protecting care now. We enjoy God's constant gaze now because of the work of the branch. And we will one day enjoy great peace and great prosperity in the kingdom of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for this vision of Zechariah that gives us hope on this Reformation Day that we too can be clothed with pure vestments and have our iniquity taken away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gospel that we've sung. Thank you for the gospel that we've read. Thank you for the gospel that we just heard preached. Thank you for the gospel that we're getting ready to see in the Lord's Supper. Would you seal these truths to our hearts? Would you cause us to exercise faith in you, reliance upon you, deeper trust in you? Those among us who have yet to be justified, may they, in the language of Luke 18, go home justified this morning by recognizing their sin and running to Jesus. May those of us who are justified rejoice in our right standing and the legal declaration that is over us that will never change, never be removed, never go up and down, though we always do. But it remains firmly fixed forever. It is finished. And we thank you for a finished salvation that we don't contribute to. All we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so we are grateful for the righteousness that you have provided for us. Bless us now as we come to your table to remember what our Savior has done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.